You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Y'all are about to see something special. This glove is amazing. You haven't even seen it yet. It can keep me from falling. It can play a little piano. It can pick things up off the ground. Amazing. This glove is weak, lifeless, can't seem to do much of anything. This glove is amazing because there is a power at work within it. There is a skill behind it, a will, actually, a person who is inhabiting the glove. The glove can do anything I can do. Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of John. John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them will bear much fruit. Those people who relate to me the way that branches relate to a vine the way that a glove relates to a hand, will find that to be extremely fruitful in their lives. And that, well, is intimately connected to what we talk about when we talk about calling in the church. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6 in a Bible. Bible or a phone, Judges chapter 6, that's the Old Testament toward the beginning of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to buy you one. Judges chapter 6, we're going to be starting at verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed over Israel, and because of Midian, the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places in the mountains, caves, strongholds. For whenever the Israelites put in seed, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the land as far as the neighborhood of Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they and their livestock would come up, and they would even bring their tents as thick as locusts. Neither they nor their camels could be counted, so they wasted the land as they came in. Thus Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not pay reverence to the gods, the Amorites, in whose land you live. But you have not given heed to my voice. Now, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, and his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon answered him, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off 
and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. He responded, But sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my family. The Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. We'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do you know if God is calling you? How do you know if the heart of God is starting to peek through your heart, the way that my finger is starting to peek through this glove? Well, what breaks your heart? What scares you? What drives you nuts? Those are really good signs, indicators, that God's heart may be very close to your heart at that moment, that you might actually be called to do something. What breaks your heart? Now, the scene of this story is heartbreaking. It is tragic. The people of Israel are living their lives, and for no apparent reason, the Midianites think, those guys are easy targets. We will take from them, and they won't be able to fight back. It's the grasshoppers in a bug's life. Every time the ants gather it all in, the grasshoppers come and take all the food. It's the bully in the schoolyard who just beats you up and takes your lunch money and says, I will see you again tomorrow. That's what happens every single time. They put in seed in the ground, and the Midianites come. And when they come, they don't just come with like swords and shields as some kind of army expecting a fight, ready to kind of fight against you. They assume there won't be a fight. They come with tents. They bring sheep. This is not a battle. These people are pushovers. We will just tell the people of Israel, this is our land now. These are our crops now. Thanks for watering them. Thanks for weeding them. We will enjoy eating this. And the people of Israel are hiding like moles in the ground, like badgers. They're just taking shelter in rocks and in caves, and they are miserable and poor and hungry. It's a heartbreaking story. Because they don't even feel like anyone's going to fight back against them. The prophet who stands up after the people of Israel cry out to God, begging God for help. This guy sees this as a heartbreaking story. And sometimes we think of prophets in the Old Testament as mean or judgmental people, or we think of the word prophecy as always telling someone about the future. But a lot of the time, prophets in the Bible don't talk about the future. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they tell us about Jesus long in advance. Sometimes they talk about what God is about to do and why. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But right here and right now, all the prophet says is, you guys have forgotten who God is. Don't you know that God delivered you out of the hand of Egypt? You're in the hand of a different enemy. Don't you know that God gave you the land that you're standing on? Don't you remember who God is? Don't you remember how much God cares about you and that God said you should listen to him and that God said you should call out and he would listen to you? But you're not listening to him. No statement of judgment, no connecting of the dots, no this is all your fault, no God is going to punish you, just a statement of facts, just this is the way that it is. Heartbreaking. Sometimes when God is calling you to do something, you need to look at the world the way it actually is, see it in all of its sorrow, in all of the really broken cycles that people get stuck in. The people of Israel are in a really broken cycle. The whole book of Judges, and it doesn't look like it, but the whole book of Judges is about the grace of God. It's about a group of people who consistently say, I'm not so sure I need your help. And they get into real trouble, and then God saves them. And then a little bit later they go, we're not so sure we need our help. Life is going really well. And then life goes really badly, and they go, 
We really need your help. And then God comes in. It's just this cycle they get stuck in, the same cycle that you and I occasionally get stuck in. God saved me. My life is going really well. I don't really need to talk to him. Wow, my life is going really badly. Where is God? Why has he abandoned me? Oh, I really need you in my life. God shows up. Oh, this is great. Yeah, totally. I'm going to be really involved in my faith now. And then it gets really good, and I don't really need my faith anymore. And then we kind of walk away from it. I'm totally going to pray today. And we do. And then a week later, man, I haven't prayed in like a week. That's cycles that we get stuck into. What breaks your heart? What cycles do you see people trapped in around you? Not just faith struggles. We know, right? We know that it is heartbreaking that pornography destroys lives. We know that it has destroyed many of our lives for long periods of time. It destroys relationships. We know that it doesn't just destroy intimacy and relationships. It also is like locusts in people's lives. It creates slaves of men and women. It encourages abuse. It encourages the destruction of childhood for so many people. We know this. It's heartbreaking. What breaks your heart? Do you know people in your office who are very wealthy, who seem to be succeeding all of the time, and every time they succeed, it feels like the goalpost moves? And then they're really good at what they do, and they work really hard, and they get the car and the, the life and the house and all the things that they're supposed to have, and then the goalpost moves. And then they're working really hard, and, they, and they, they can't seem to figure out, why is it that I'm never really satisfied? Why is it that it's always like there's, there's another car to buy, there's another thing to do, there's another hurdle to jump, and I can never really arrive. I can never really feel successful. Heartbreaking. Do you know that it takes 34 months for a foster kid to get adopted? On average. That's almost three years. 34 months. That means that some kids it takes a lot longer. That's how averages work. That's tragic. That's heartbreaking. Many of us have open rooms in our houses. Many people in Phoenix have open rooms in their houses, places in their family. People are going through in vitro fertilization, spending thousands and thousands of dollars. And there's thousands and thousands of kids who just need a home to be in. What breaks your heart? There's a priest in South Central LA named Greg Boyle. He's a fascinating guy who wrote a book called Tattoos on the Heart, well worth reading. And he's been a priest to gang members in South Central LA for decades. 1988, he buried his first gang member. Between 88 and 2010, 167 more. Young people killed in gang violence. People just trapped in cycles. Drug addiction, prison system, cycles of poverty in their family, things they just can't seem to get out of. And he loves these people. A lot of people in the world have a real problem with gangs and people who'd be in gangs. People who deal drugs and people who take drugs. He says the challenge of compassion is learning not to judge the way people carry their poverty, but learning to be amazed at the fact they can carry it at all. And little by little, he and people are loving people in his neighborhood in the name of Jesus. They started with something called Homeboy Industries. It is amazing. And what they do is they have a bakery and people who get out of prison can get job training because all they really know how to do is sell drugs. Now they know how to do something else. Not only that, they have a job. They can make money. Not only that, they have resume experience. They have something that they've done. And then they started a screen printing industry and other things like that. But little by little, what they realized is the marks of the past needed to be healed in these people because they're covered in tattoos and it makes them really hard to hire. One guy he tells about in the story, which is the beginning of their tattoo removal industry, had this tattooed across his forehead, the world, spelled out. Couldn't get a job at McDonald's, unsurprising. And so they started a tattoo removal thing where 4,000 people a year are consistently getting the marks of their past removed from their bodies. I can't think of anything that sounds a little bit more like the gospel to me than people who have permanent ink on their bodies about mistakes 
and poor choices and identity they've chosen for themselves, families they used to belong to, being removed from their bodies so they can be returned to the design that God always had for them. All because it broke some people's hearts. You see it poking through. Little by little, people embracing God's calling. What scares you? There is a lot of fear in Gideon's story, not just in this chapter, but the more you read about him, the guy, well, most of the time, Gideon looks like this. And every now and again, he's amazing. But he's not an example to follow, really. What you need to hear about Gideon's story is what God can do through people like you and me when finally there's a power and a skill and at work within us. When we finally get in touch with God's call on our lives. But Gideon is scared. When we first hear about him, he is threshing wheat in a wine press. That means very little to you. Most of those words make no sense because we don't live in an agrarian world and that's okay. But that's like making Thanksgiving dinner in a Volkswagen bug. Where is the oven? How will you do that? Where would all the food go? Where's the refrigerator? That's not the right kind of space. That's not the right kind of environment. That won't work. That's what you need to hear. Anyone who knows anything about wine presses and threshing would go, that's impossible. This is how you thresh wheat. After a really big harvest, you gather all of the grass together, all of the grain together. You bring it up a mountain. And you bring a lot of people with you, because it's going to take a lot of people. And everyone gets big sticks, and they just start wailing on the grain. Over and over and over again. You know when you eat popcorn, you get a little bit of something stuck in your teeth? Yeah, that's all over every grain of wheat. So that's why you hit it to loosen the skin. And then, because you're on top of a mountain, there's usually a breeze going by, and you take a pitchfork and you put it under and you throw it up in the air. And the wind carries the grass and that skin, which is called chaff, carries it away, and the seed falls back down. Geniuses. This is something people do all over the world still. Throw it up in the air, the light stuff gets carried away, the seed falls back down, you gather that up, hooray. The best place to do this would be on top of a mountain with no trees around with a large group of people. You throw a big party, it's a really fun thing. Gideon is doing this in a valley where there's no breeze, in a pit made by human beings, so there's no, if there was a breeze, it still wouldn't really make it, and he's all by himself. <laughs> Nothing, there's no separation going on. This is the most frustrating experience you could ever imagine. It's incredibly ineffective. He is succeeding not at all. This is when an angel shows up and says, you seem really brave. Now, you can imagine that he isn't very brave at that moment. And God says, no, you're going to be really brave because I'm going to be with you. There's nothing about Gideon that is inherently brave, inherently capable in any way. And Gideon responds, oh, God's going to use me? No, God's not going to use me. That's not the kind of thing God does anymore. Haven't you seen what's going on lately? And by the way, if God was going to use somebody, he wouldn't use me. I'm of the smallest family. I'm the least important person in the smallest family. Of the least important clan, of the smallest tribe, of the nation of Israel that is already getting beaten up by the Midianites. I'm the wrong guy. No one can use me. There's no way what you're saying is true. What scares you? Most of the time, when you get close to the idea that God is calling you, it is uncomfortable. Because you think, I can't do that. That's too big. I can't do that, that's too hard. I can't do that, that would require millions of dollars. I can't do that, that would require skills and abilities. I don't have resources that are not mine. The thing about the kingdom of God, if you really wanna be a part of it, you need to remember this. You can never operate with a scarcity mentality, never. 
Not because you have any resources or anything to bring to the table, but because God, he owns all the cows on all the mountains. This is what the Psalms say. He's amazing. He has everything you could possibly need. For him, $1 and a million dollars, just paper. Easy for him to produce. He grows all the trees on all the mountains. He is unbelievable. And yet you and I have consistently, when we get close to God's call in our lives, we go, ooh, that sounds hard. Ooh, I'm not sure anyone could do that. That sounds risky. That sounds dangerous. That sounds impossible for someone like me. God uses other people. No. Whenever you feel like this, 100%, what you really need is God to be with you. God to start peeking through your life. God to move in you, to really respond to God's call on you. Henry Blackaby, who's a a Christian thinker and writer, uh, remarked once, Some people say, God will never ask me to do something I can't do. I've come to the place in my life that if the assignment I sense God giving me is something I know I can handle, I know it's probably not from God. The kind of assignments God gives in the Bible are always God-sized, always beyond what people can do, because he wants to demonstrate his nature, his strength, his provision, his kindness to people, and to a watching world. This is the only way the world will come to know him, when God uses people like you and like me. Gideon will do amazing, impossible things. The point of the book of Judges, anytime you read it, the judges are not people to try and be like. They are all extremely human, miserable failures. And God uses them to do incredible things. And in this story, Gideon, just seconds later, is going to have to confront his family. He's going to have to go to his dad and deal with cycles of sin and shame in his own life, his own neighborhood, his hometown. Because the prophet was right. Actually, things are pretty heartbreaking all throughout Israel, and people are bowing down to other gods. Gideon's dad is a priest for hire to false gods. And Gideon will go and do something extremely intolerant in our society. He's going to go destroy a place of worship to a different god. He's going to cause a massive amount of conflict and anger, actually, in his own hometown and in his own family. It's a huge risk in his life. The kind of risk I see 13-year-old kids take every time you bring them to a camp, and they come to know Jesus. And they look at you and they say, I'm going to have to go home to my family, though. I'm going to have to go home to my friends, though. It was always a huge witness in my life to watch these kids who were taking a huge gamble on following Jesus that I never really had to take because my family was always on board with me following Jesus. It was just hard for me as a person. Gideon will then go from here to fight the Midianites. That's the thing that's going to happen. They are hundreds of thousands. They're not even remotely worried about Israel, which would tell you that Israel doesn't have an army. Gideon tries to raise up an army of random farmers and people who live in caves. And God says, even that is too impressive. If you go fight against those people, people are going to say, an empty glove managed to destroy Midian. They won't realize you needed me. I want you to tell people to leave. So Gideon, looking at a small, mediocre army, sends people home. And then God says, that's still too many people. I want you to pick the weirdos. And what happens is this. He says, everybody go down to the river, and the people who drink water like this, those are the people I want you to choose. A hundred percent. That's the actual story in Judges 7. The weirdos who drink water like dogs. Not the normal people. Those Those people, the army of weirdos, couple of hundred people against a couple hundred thousand Midianites. That's what I want. And God 
does amazing work. And Gideon says, oh my gosh, this glove is amazing. People are blown away what God does in and through him. What scares you? There are undoubtedly things that you sense deep down that God might call you to. And one of the things that freaks people out is sometimes God calls people to live in other countries or to do crazy mission work somewhere. I'm a level with you. If you get close to God's call in your life, he, he might do that. That could happen. Sometimes he calls you to give up careers that you really like. Sometimes he calls you to take steps out that are crazy and dangerous. But sometimes he calls you to stay put right where you are, which will actually feel even more crazy and even more dangerous. See, there's this disconnect we sometimes feel between our job and some sense of calling. We think that if I'm doing my job, maybe I'm not being called. I have known many people in ministry, in churches, in nonprofit organizations, who treat those things like career opportunities. Like it's just a stepping stone to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. Even pastors have ambition. Even pastors occasionally do really ugly things, but they try to baptize it in the name of Jesus. Ministry is not an opportunity to take career steps forward. And I've also seen insurance salesmen who treat their work like it's the work of the gospel, protecting widows and orphans. I've seen second grade teachers who show up to work every day and it's a mission field. These are my kids, these are their families, this is the neighborhood. I'm gonna love these kids and I need to teach them math and English. That is essential. And I'm gonna do that as someone who loves them and cares about them. I have known CPAs who say, this is what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna protect people from debt, from slavery. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep people from walking into that. I've known baristas, I've known bartenders, I've known nurses, I've known doctors who know that what they do is God's call on their life. But here's the problem. A job ends at five o'clock and a calling doesn't. A job you can retire from. A calling, that's till the day you die. A job gives you a paycheck and security and sometimes a nice sense of identity. A calling will always make you feel, and we talked about this week, this last week, a calling will always make you feel like you're walking on water. Always. Because you'll realize that you need someone to be at work in and through you. So what scares you? Where do you feel like God's heart is poking through yours? What drives you nuts? What bugs you? What frustrates you? Because Gideon is annoyed. That is a really obvious thing in this story. Which might be because he's really frustrated trying to thresh wheat in an impossible situation. He's making Thanksgiving dinner in a Volkswagen. It can't be done. And the angel shows up and says, you seem really brave because God is with you. And he says, hmm, okay, if you want to do sarcasm. And the angel's not doing sarcasm, but he's just like ready. He's mad. Verse 13, very literally in Hebrew, says this. With me, my Lord. The Lord is with us. Then why has all this happened? And where are all the miracles that our ancestors used to just count off, saying, yeah, didn't the Lord bring us out of Egypt? The Lord has abandoned us and given us into the palms of our enemies, Midian. We're no longer in God's hands. We're in Midian's hands. This is a really okay prayer. In fact, we know it's an okay prayer because in verse 14, God turns toward Gideon. God actually likes prayers like this. The Psalms are full of prayers like this. God, I'm really mad at you. Things don't look the way they should look. Good job. You know me well enough to know that you should be mad at this. 
This is not the situation that we should be in. People who accept the status quo, people who never get mad that things are the way that they are, these are people who are not very close to the heart of God. God's kingdom is always, always, always breaking into the world in which we live. Always turning things upside down. Always saving people who the world does not care about. Always reaching people who are at the margins. Always rescuing people from some of these heartbreaking situations that nobody seems to care about as long as it doesn't affect their bottom line. If you are regularly annoyed when you read your Bible and you look at the world, good job. If you are regularly frustrated and says, this does not look like that, and it really should, you are very close to the heart of God. Very close to the heart of God. God loves people who are angry at the things he is angry at, who are frustrated by the things he is frustrated by, who see a need for change and for growth. Here's the problem. What's going to happen is this. Someone really needs to fix this. Someone really needs to do something about this. And God's going to say, I agree. Guess who someone is? Ooh, and then what happens to Gideon almost immediately is he flips back to fear. Hang on, that's too big, that's too crazy, that's too hard. And God says, no, no, you're going to need that passion, you're going to need that. Go in this strength of yours. I'm sending you out. What bugs you? In our time, many people settle for cynicism and critical thinking. They settle for it. They go, that's bad, this is bad, those people are no good at this. And we live in a society that's really, really good at pointing out what's wrong, and no one seems to step up and say, and I will do something about it. All the time. There are bloggers, there are political movements, there are people on TV, and everyone knows you can make a living by criticizing. But very few people are willing to take the risk and say, I've got a better way forward. And it's because we have a world that's sort of relentlessly critiquing character, relentlessly cynical, and that's easy. It's easy to be cynical. It's hard to take a step and try something and do it, maybe imperfectly. There are people who now don't want to name junior highs after Abraham Lincoln. I'm not saying Abraham Lincoln needs junior highs named after him, but the reason is he wasn't as great as he could have been. And you think, okay. But the lesson that will send to us is, well, what, what could I possibly do? What could I possibly do in the world in which I live? The truth is, sometimes you're just going to have to risk the fact that people aren't going to like what you did that you might do it imperfectly, that you may make imperfect moves. And if it's frustrating enough, you'll get moving. If it's annoying enough that this isn't working out well, you'll get moving. Uh, imagine a person who at their office sees someone who's a, in power, a boss or a manager, and that person is regularly bad with people of color. Now what tends to happen in our time, people go home and they gossip about that. This is super annoying to me. But they don't actually take action. They wouldn't take a risk. They wouldn't actually start advocating for people of color. They wouldn't you know, maybe risk their job in the midst of that, or actually you know, rocking the boat. And it's just sort of, I'm just gonna kind of critique from, I'm gonna throw rocks, but I'm not actually gonna do anything or get involved in this risky situation. Now, I would imagine that there are things in your life already that you can think of that bug you, but you've sort of settled with them bugging you, and what God says to Gideon is, great, I'm glad that's annoying. Let's move. Let's change. Let's take action. What you're feeling is the heart of God poking through in this moment. God regularly, regularly does amazing things with things that, that bother people, right? Moses is looking around at the people of Israel, very annoyed that they are enslaved. And God says, yeah, guess who I'm sending? And Moses goes, oh, no, not me. I'm the wrong guy. I don't have the right words. You should pick somebody else. And God goes, who gave breath to mortals? Who do you think is going to be with you? Do you think you're going to be the one who does all this work? Gideon looks at God and says, this shouldn't be this way. And God says, I agree. That's why I'm sending you. 
And God will use literally a word-for-word quote what he says to Moses. Have I not sent you? Did I not just commission you? Don't you understand what's happening? I'm not just going to rain down miracles. I consistently choose to work through people who will show the world my glory because it's obvious they couldn't do this on their own. It's obvious if you start to look that something is peeking through, and the thing that is peeking through is the heart of God. Consistently with Gideon, we hear this. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. In heartbreaking situations, in frustrating situations, in moments when you are terrified, I will be with you. The point is not the glove. It's the one operating through the glove. There's one last story. A woman I have talked about from time to time who I love. Her name is Henrietta Mears. She died a while ago. She's an amazing woman, did an amazing ministry in many people's lives. I think she's an excellent argument for why women should be in ministry. For a while, she was sort of a young adult pastor of sorts, but really a volunteer. She wasn't on staff with the church. She just really wanted to love some younger kind of high school, college age people. She made a huge impact on Billy Graham, on Bill Bright. Bill Bright, who started Campus Crusade for Christ. Billy Graham, who's arguably the most successful evangelist of the last hundred years. This woman helped them understand Jesus, and many more who led in remarkable ways. But she was annoyed because she kept getting these people who, you know, hadn't really been well discipled when they were kids. And so she got really involved in the children's ministry. So that's where ministry starts. I'm going to get really involved in this. And some people get annoyed by children's ministry and say, well, I'm just going to go to a church with a better one. She says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to get engaged. I'm going to get involved. So she started writing curriculum, which she didn't know how to do. And it was really good. And then other churches wanted to buy it and use it in many ways. And so it, she had this impact in many youth ministries all around kind of the California, LA area. But then as she was looking at these kids and she was looking at these young adults and the leaders, it's like, they're really exhausted. They're not hearing from God often enough. We need some kind of retreat center. We need some kind of camp. So she got together with some people. She started casting a vision for a thing. And they built a camp in the mountains outside of LA. It's called Forest Home. It's still around. Lots of people go every year. It's an amazing place. Camp slash retreat center. Some of you know it. Forest Home. And then she said, this is really good. But the people who are leading in these places, I feel like they don't just like have an easy resource to read their Bibles with. They need something. And there's nothing that exists. That's just one book they could read that makes sense to them. So she wrote it. She wrote a one-volume introduction to the Bible. This woman is a volunteer. And it, hundreds of thousands of copies. It's still being read today. It's actually pretty good. And at the end of her life, you know what she said? I wish I'd trusted God more. I wish I knew that he was with me all along the way. I don't want you to get to the end of your lives and say, I wish I'd trusted God more. Right now, right here, right now, you know that God is calling you, maybe in the place that you are, because you're already feeling your heart break a little bit, because you're already scared out of your mind a little bit, because you're already frustrated with the way things are in the status quo. That's the heart of God peeking through. Where is God calling you? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus.